And good afternoon. Um, my name is Pastor Dave. I serve as one of the pastors of Redeemer Church, and welcome to this gathering. It's nice to see you today, and to those of you who are watching online, we're glad that you're participating today with us as well. If you haven't been able to join us in person lately because the registration list has been full, we want to encourage you to sign up on the waiting list anyway. We can't make any promises, but lately we've, we've been able to get many from the waiting list into these services. So please do register uh, your interest. Also, I didn't mention it last week. None of us did, but we're grateful for the generous giving of this congregation, whether it's here in person in the offering boxes on the way out or whether it's online. We praise God for your generosity and we praise God for his provision for our church. Well, today we have an epic text in front of us in the Gospel of John. So I think in world record redeemer fashion, in just a few minutes into the service, we're going to jump into the sermon. I don't want us to miss anything from John chapter 1, and so we're going to dive in. But first, let me pray. Let's pray together. Oh, Father God, we thank you for the privilege of gathering together today as your people as those who are saved by grace through the atonement of Jesus Christ. Father, thank you. As we sit under your preached word today, would our minds be alert? Would our hearts be warmed and convicted? Would our lives be so consumed by you that we would never cease to praise you? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, over the past two weeks, we've covered a lot of ground in the Bible, haven't we? We've looked at the Old Testament, and we've looked at the New Testament. We've seen how the Old Testament is a story of anticipation. Dr. Adam encouraged us to cling to it like a lamp in a dark place. And then Pastor Eric, also known to many of us as Dr. Z, he showed us that the New Testament is important because it reveals and teaches us about Christ. And he encouraged us last week to do the hard work of exegesis, to exegete the text, to rightly study the text, so that in a day when many will twist the truth, we'll grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. While the Old Testament anticipates the Savior, the New Testament reveals the Savior. Our Bible is one book, and we have one God who inspired the book, one redemption, one way of salvation, one mediator, and one Savior. Now, from Genesis all the way to Revelation, the entire Bible, from cover to cover, there's one storyline of Scripture, but within it, there are different books written in a variety of literary forms and genres. We have historical books which reveal the past. You can break that into a couple sections. The Law, the first five books of the Bible, books like Genesis and Exodus, then you have general history, books like First and Second Samuel, which we've recently studied at Redeemer, or the book of Acts in the New Testament, which looks at the history of the early church. There are wisdom and poetry books like the Psalms and Proverbs, prophetic books that point to the future, apocalyptic sections, a form of prophecy like portions of the book of Daniel and Revelation. They take us right into the future. A large portion of the New Testament are letters or epistles of doctrine inspired by God, but written by different men like 
Paul, or as we saw in the last two weeks, Peter. But the New Testament begins with four books, which are called the Gospels. They show us the life and the teaching of Christ on earth. And the Gospel of John, where we're going to begin today, it falls within that section. We have four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are known as the synoptic Gospels. Synoptic means same or similar. And you may notice as you read those three Gospels, many of the same stories, even some of the same language is used and shared among those three Gospels. Now, Matthew was written by a Jewish tax collector using his skills of precision. Matthew's Gospel begins with the genealogy, a family tree of Jesus. We also find in Matthew's Gospel the longest portion of a sermon of Jesus that we have called the Sermon on the Mount. And we can imagine just Matthew there listening to Jesus' teaching, copiously taking notes, trying to get down as much as he could. Now Matthew probably had a Jewish readership in mind and he was careful to focus on Jesus as the one who fulfilled the Old Testament prophecies. You have Mark. Mark, a former associate of Paul, a later disciple of Peter, he writes what I like to call the action-packed gospel. I mean, this gospel moves quickly, and the key word in Mark's gospel is immediately. Throughout the book, you see this word, immediately this, and immediately that, and Jesus immediately did this, and immediately went there. Mark transitions from one story to the next to the next, and the focus isn't so much on Jesus' teaching, but on his actions, and it jumps directly into his three years of public ministry. Now, Luke, Luke is the longest gospel and includes the most detailed birth narrative, so many of the, the verses we read at Christmas time come out of Luke, Luke the physician, the historian, he's concerned with giving us an accurate account of Jesus' miraculous birth. It's also the gospel with the most parables, those familiar one-point stories like the Good Samaritan or the prodigal son. And then you have the gospel of John. He was known as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Now, this doesn't mean that Jesus didn't love the other disciples or, or anyone else, but there's a special closeness of relationship between John and between Jesus, so much so that John was able to record in chapter 17 of his gospel the high priestly prayer of Jesus, these, these words, these prayers of Jesus to the Father right before his death. And we have an account of that in chapter 17. And then Jesus' words to the Father um, uh, at the cross, we see Jesus pray, but we see in the midst of him praying, in the midst of him dying, Jesus actually hands over his own mother to John for him to care for her as her son. Well, one way to summarize each gospel is to say that Matthew is about Jesus' kingship. Mark is about Jesus' servanthood. Uh, we see Luke about Jesus' humanity and John about Jesus' divinity. That's what really sets this gospel apart. Whereas the synoptic gospels begin with Jesus' birth uh, or his ministry, or in Matthew's case, it goes further back. It traces the family tree back to Abraham and back to David, on to Jesus. But John's gospel goes even further back. As one theologian says, the other gospels begin with Bethlehem. John begins with the bosom of the Father. Matthew and Luke takes us to the cradle and the manger, Mark to the prophecies of old, but John takes us back into the mists of eternity. 
That's what we're going to see even in these first 18 verses today. A look all the way back to the beginning. It's the prologue of the Gospel of John. Not the kind that you can just skip over and get to the main story. This lays the groundwork for everything else. A prologue is a, it's a separate introduction that stands apart or stands alone from the main work. But normally the goal of the prologue is the same as the goal of the story or the goal of the book. Now kids, especially maybe the tweens or teens who are here today, you've probably read books in school that have a prologue. And I'm sure you've all had to do book reports on what you've read. You can read a whole book, but even then, it can be a bit challenging to write a book report, to summarize it in a sentence or a paragraph or even a couple pages. It's a challenge to read the mind of the author and get his purpose or her purpose exactly right. Unless, unless the author just tells you the answer. Now that would be nice, wouldn't it? Well, here in the Gospel of John, he makes this assignment easy for us. It's the easiest book report in the world. What is the purpose of John's Gospel? Well, flip with me in your Bibles to John chapter 20. We'll have those verses on the screen as well. John chapter 20, towards the very end of the Gospel. You can flip there, verses 30 and 31. And let me just show you what John says himself about the purpose of his Gospel. Listen to his words. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in, in this book. But these are written so that you may believe. Now listen to, to that again. So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. I mean, there are many other things Jesus did. A whole lot of things Jesus did. This is just a sampling of them, John is saying. This is just a portion of them. John specifically chose these signs. Why? Well, here's the purpose of the book. John wrote these things down so that we may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. That's the answer to the book report. That's the purpose. John wrote this book that we may believe that Jesus is the Christ. John's goal is to persuade us. In a sense, John's goal is evangelistic. He chose through God's inspiration to include signs and to include stories that would especially reveal Jesus as God in the flesh. He's laser sharp in his focus. And there's so much more he could have said. Now, I love the last verse of the entire gospel. Flip over another page if you have your Bibles open. John chapter 21, verse 25. The very end of the gospel. The very last verse there. Verse 25, John just kind of closes. It's almost a bit of a disclaimer there. Here at the end he says, Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. We've heard that. Were every one of them to be written... I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Now, I love that. Can you imagine? Jesus did a lot of things, so many that if they were all written down, they couldn't even fit in the biggest library in the world. And not just that, John says, the world itself, the world itself couldn't hold them. John is saying Jesus did so much. Jesus said so much. 
that the world isn't big enough to hold a description of them, the magnitude, the, the weight, the amount, all that he did would be far too much for this earth, this world to contain. But the goal of the book, the goal of the gospel of John is that we'd believe. Now, why is it important that we believe? Why is John trying to persuade us? Well, it's because by believing in Jesus, John said there in chapter 20 that you may have life. John wrote this book because our lives depend on it. It's only through belief in Jesus that we can live. There are not many ways to God. There are not many gods. And there are not many ways to be saved by God. Salvation belongs to the Lord and comes only by believing in Jesus. Well, John understands that if you believe in Christ, you will live. But if you don't, you'll be judged. He knew that there really is a heaven. And there really is a hell. And people actually go there. And so friends, as we begin John's gospel today, I must ask you one question. Have you turned away from your sin and believed in Jesus to save you from your sins? This is what the gospel of John is all about. John's hope and prayer is that if not already, by the end of your reading and study of this gospel, that your answer would be yes. Yes, you have turned away from your sin. Yes, you have believed in Jesus to save you from your sins. Now, this is going to be the application every single week in these sermons because that's John's purpose and point. There will be different applications, of course, throughout the gospel, but there will be one primary application every single week, and that's to believe. To believe. To believe in Jesus to be saved. Well, that's my prayer for you as we start this book. Thirteen sermons in the Gospel of John through this summer. That's my prayer. That's my prayer as your pastor, whether you're 80 years old, or whether you're a child. So kids, I ask you the same question. Have you believed in Jesus to save you? The goal is not an A plus on the book report of the Gospel of John. I've already given you that answer anyway. It's out there. No, the goal is to respond in a saving faith that Christ alone can save you from your sins. And so we're going to start today with that goal in mind, with John's goal in mind, the first 18 verses, this prologue. And what we're going to see today is seven things about Jesus. Seven things about Jesus. Seven things that the gospel writer John is trying to show us about Jesus so that we might believe and have life. And so seven things, that's our outline. Number one, that the Word is God. The Word is God. We see that in verses 1 and 2. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Okay, I've spoken to you kids already. Kids, tweens, 
I've given you one answer already to a question. I have another one right now. I know how much many of you loved my quizzes on the videos, on the Redeemer online videos. So I have one for you today, a, a live quiz question for the kids and for the tweens. And just know that I love congregational participation. And so I want you to shout out the answer. And by the way, kids, I just love having you here. I love being with you. I love worshiping with you. I love seeing you study God's word. I love seeing you take notes. I love seeing you have your Bibles open. You've been attentive and you've really encouraged me. It's a joy to be together. You've listened well. So here's the question. Here's the the quiz question. When you heard me read those first two verses of the Gospel of John, in the beginning was the word, what other book in the Bible does this sound like? Lots of Genesis. I'd like to say it louder, please. Genesis. Genesis. Yes, so many kids got it. That's great. You know your Bibles. You've read your Bibles. Praise God. Thanks for that clap over there, Johan and Jenna and everybody else. Genesis. Genesis. I knew you were listening. John, here in the Gospel of John, he starts way back where Genesis starts. In the very beginning. In the very beginning. But kids and the rest of us notice the point John is making by going to the beginning. It's to say that Jesus was there. The Word was there in the beginning. Jesus was already there. Now, before we move on, you may have a question. Why is the name The Word used for Jesus here, and what does it mean? Well, if you have that question, that's a good question. John's concern in the book is to give us, in a sense, Christ's CV. And assume like a CV, he only has a short space to persuade us that Jesus is God. And when you hand your CV to a potential employer, what's at the top of the CV? Well, your, your name. You put your name at the top of the CV. If anything needs to be clear on that CV to that potential employer, it's got to be your name. You want them to know who you are. And so if your goal is to show that Jesus is God, what name do you put at the top of the CV? Well, there are many titles for Jesus in the New Testament. Christ itself is the most frequent title. It means Messiah. It's used so much, some of you may have thought that Christ was Jesus' last name. But sorry to disappoint you. It's not his last name. Jesus is his name, and Christ is his title. It would be clearer if we called him Jesus the Christ, meaning Jesus the Savior. Now, the second most common name is Lord. There are other titles. The Son of Man is used about 80 times. It was Jesus' favorite title for himself. It was a claim of divinity when Jesus would use it because he was pointing back to the book of Daniel where we see the Son of Man there on his throne judging the world. Another common name in John's gospel is the Son of God, or in verse 14 today, the Son from the Father. Now, to be clear, uh, let, me, let me just be clear on that. This doesn't mean that somehow Jesus was conceived in the same way you and I were conceived. You know, as Christians, we reject the notion that somehow the Father had relations with Mary or that anyone had relations with Mary at this point, not even Joseph. Now, Joseph and Mary, they were in the process of getting married, but they hadn't joined in union yet. Now, the Virgin Mary conceived a baby by 
the miracle of God. Now, being called the Son of God isn't describing an earthly child being born from a human father and a human mother. It means that Jesus was in the same nature as God. Hebrews says of Jesus that the Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. Well, we could go on and on with names. There are many more. I wonder what was going through John's mind as he's writing this gospel, this book, and as he thought to himself, what name should I start off this gospel? He might have considered all these options, but he chooses the title or the name, The Word. This is the the Greek word logos. The importance of the use of this name and description would have actually been evident to both believers and non-believers alike. In Genesis 1, we see that the word of God, that by the word of God, creation was made. In other places in the Old Testament, you see that God's word is powerful. You see that it's powerful in deliverance, Psalm 107, in judgment, Isaiah 55. We see at other times, the word of God is sent to heal. Throughout the Old Testament, we see that it's the word of the Lord who came to the prophets. And when the word of the Lord came to the prophets, God was disclosing himself to the world. D.A. Carson says this about the word being used as a name for Christ. Carson writes, In short, God's word in the Old Testament is his powerful self-expression in creation, revelation, and salvation. And the personification of that word makes it suitable for John to apply it as a title to God's ultimate self-disclosure, the person of his own son. But if the expression would prove richest for Jewish readers... It would also resonate in the minds of some readers with entirely pagan backgrounds. In their case, however, they would soon discover that whatever they had understood the term to mean in the past, the author whose work they were then reading was forcing them into fresh thought. You know, John thinks that the word is an appropriate title that summarizes God's self-expression. It would have caught the ear both of Jewish and pagan readers. No, as Carson alluded to, it was a significant concept among pagan philosophers in Christ's day. As one author writes, it referred to an uncreated divine mind that gives meaning and order for the universe. And so what John does is he takes that concept, that concept that the pagan philosophers would have had, and, and, and he comes back to them and says, no, this concept exists. And it's not just a concept, it's actually God. It's Jesus, God in the flesh. Well, friends, the word here is Christ. And it's a very important name and a very important title that would have shined brightly on the front page, top of the CV that John is writing here. And John is saying that the Word, that the Word is eternal. Jesus is saying that the Word existed in the beginning, that he existed in eternity past. See, from the very first verse of John's gospel, he's already pointing to his thesis statement. In fact, he's even making it. Jesus is God. He's not trying to hide it. He's not trying to build up to it. He's just going to go ahead and say it right here in verse 1. Jesus is God. The Word is God. The Word existed eternally. He has no beginning. He had no beginning, and he has no end. Before there was even creation, before anything existed, space, time, matter, in a beginning that had no beginning, all that existed was God. And the Word was there. The Word was there, and the Word was God. I mean, what an incredible verse. What an incredible start to this gospel. No, the Word, Jesus, is God. 
But notice something else about what he says in these first two verses. Not only is the word God, he is with God. I'm sure you caught that. That's the second thing we see about Jesus in our passage. Number two, the word is with God. How can Jesus be God and also with God? We're going to talk about this as we go through the Gospel of John. But here we get one of the clearest formulations of the plurality within the Godhead. The word with here has the idea of toward, of being face to face with another. The Gospel of John denies both atheism from the start. It denies Unitarianism. Later on in the Gospel, we see that the Godhead consists of a trinity God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. We've already been singing about it here this afternoon. So right here from the start, we learn that there is not more than one God, but that there is a plurality within the Godhead. As Christians, we vehemently deny that there is more than one God, but we do believe in one God who has eternally existed in three persons, blessed Trinity This means that the words and works of Jesus are truly the words and works of God. Now, Jesus was not created, as some cults would say. Jesus and the Holy Spirit, for that matter, have existed from before time began. Well, there's so much more we could say about the Trinity, but here we have just a foundation of the plurality within the Godhead. We'll have to stop here, but again, we will pick it up throughout the Gospel of John. But for now, John makes the point that Jesus is God, and at the same time, there is a plurality within the Godhead. Well, a third thing about Jesus, the Word creates. The Word was God, the Word was with God, and the Word creates. Verse 3 All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Jesus is God's agent of creation, not just for a few things, not just for some things, for all things. And John states it first as a positive phrase, followed by a negative phrase, saying the same thing, just in case you didn't get it the first time. Jesus created all things, and without him, nothing else was created. There's not some second creator out there. John was combating a first century heresy that said, well, there was some pre-existing matter and and God just shaped that. John wants to make it clear what Genesis makes clear, that Jesus created ex nihilo. It's a fancy term for saying out of nothing. There was nothing there. Not only was Jesus not created, he was actually the one doing the creating. This refuted yet another heresy that crept into the early church called Arianism. You see it today in a variety of forms. No, Jesus was not the first of the creation. Jesus was the creator himself. Well, these first three verses tell us that Jesus existed eternally, that he is God, that he's part of a plurality within the Godhead, and that he is the agent of creation. All that, all that in just the first three verses. I'm reminded of one of my favorite seminary professors who upon just looking at theology like this would simply say, this is simply astonishing. I mean, these verses are astonishing. Unbelievable truths in these these verses. You can't help but worship God as you read this. John is writing earth-shattering doctrine. Now, theology is never meant just to stay in the head. It has to travel down into the heart. It must get into the heart. And so friends, as we, as we look at this word, Jesus is God. Jesus is with God and Jesus created everything. Well, these cosmic realities are almost too much 
for our finite minds to process. Our God is simply glorious. Well, I better move on or I'll be preaching all day long. There's a fourth thing, that the Word is the light. The Word creates, the Word is the light. Look at verses 4 through 9. In Him was life, and the life was the light of man. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. Well, the world was filled with darkness, but Jesus is the light who shines brightly in the darkness. Now, what happens when you go into a dark room and you flip on the light? If it's working, you flip on the light, and the light always wins, doesn't it? No amount of darkness can overcome light. Well, some think this could here be a pointer to what's called general revelation, which are those things about God that are evident to all. They're general to all. Here in verse 9, it was a light given to everyone. The reformer John Calvin called it the common light of nature. John is showing Jesus' participation in God's revealing of himself to people through creation and even our consciences. It's what Romans chapter 1 says, the light means that all humans are accountable to God and are without excuse. Well, John the Baptist is the forerunner. We'll see more of him here shortly. But he's the forerunner who testified about this light. Notice how clear he is. And notice how clear the gospel uh, writer John is here. No, John the Baptist wasn't the light, but came only to bear witness to the true light, Jesus. Well, number five, the word was rejected. The word was rejected. Verse 10, he meaning Jesus, was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. But just because Jesus made everything doesn't mean he would be believed. Jesus' own world, his own people didn't recognize him. And neither do many today. But verse 11 depicts an even greater tragedy. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Even his own people missed him. They rejected him. His, his own people didn't say, wow, okay, Jesus is here. Jesus has arrived. The Messiah has arrived. Let's party. Let's celebrate. Let's worship. Let's dance. Let's feast. No, that's not how Jesus was, was, was accepted. No, his coming didn't mean mass repentance in spite of centuries of waiting and Waiting. No, Israel missed their Messiah. I had the privilege of visiting the Holy Land back during my university days, and I was able to go to a part of it called the Western Wall. It's a portion of the remnants of, of an outer wall of the old temple. It's, it's there that many of the Jews will gather regularly to pray. And one thing you can do is you can write out your prayer on a little piece of paper and people would actually take those little prayers and you'd kind of stick them in between the stones and you'd pray and, and, and ask for God's help. Well, another name for the Western Wall 
is the Wailing Wall. Because particularly on Friday nights, just before the Jewish Sabbath, you could hear the sounds of, of people wailing as they pray, mourning the destruction of the temple and praying and pleading with God to send the Messiah. But in tragic irony, he's already come. He's come to his own people, but they missed him. He came to them in love. He came to them in healing. He came to them in preaching. He came to them in spirit. He came to them in truth. But not only did they miss him, but they called him a heretic and put him to death on a cross. His own people did not receive him. And they're still waiting today. Well, it's the same thing in our day. We have God's word. We have the preaching, but people still miss him. But for those who believe... For those who believe, there's a different reality. And that's the sixth thing about the word. The word was believed by some. You see in verses 12 and 13, the word was believed. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Now, many scholars think this prologue, these first 18 verses, were written in the form of a chiasm. Bible scholar Andreas Kostenberger makes the case that at the very center of this chiasm is not the incarnation, but his central affirmation here in verse 12. A chiasm, it's a literary feature where the beginning and the end of a portion of writing are the same or similar. And then the second portion is very similar to the second to last portion and so on. To the point where in the very middle, there's a distinct portion that is the point that the author is trying to highlight. I can't easily show the entire passage for you up on the screens, but you'll be able to see the headlines given for each section along with the verse references. You can look up these verses later on and do your own study, but you can see how the prologue begins with a testimony that Jesus is God. You see John the Baptist testifying next, and then again before the end of the prologue. And the letters see that Jesus is the light who entered into the world, and then that he dwelled as flesh in the world. And then you can see the center there in those verses 12 and 13. This is what a chiasm looks like. The goal is to highlight something really important there in the middle. And right there in the center, right there in the D, it's that for all who believe, for all who receive Jesus and believe in his name, he gives them the right to become the children of God. All who believe are adopted into God's family. Well, this is not a surprising center of the chiasm if you think about it. After all, remember John's purpose in writing. This is what John wants, John's goal, John's purpose, John's prayer is that all might believe. And when we believe, we become children of God. Now, this gospel is crying out to us. This is its purpose. Come to God. Come to God and be his child. Repent of your sin and believe in Jesus to save you. Well, to be a child of God, what a wonderful picture. What a beautiful picture of God as our Father. Of us being loved and cherished and cared for. For those of us who've had wonderful fathers, God is a Father even better than that. For those of us who've had dads who've left us or 
weren't there for us or even, even hurt us. Friends, you need to know that God is not a father like that. And he's better than you could ever imagine. We'll see in this gospel that our heavenly father is so gracious to us that he sent his one and only son to die on the cross for us. That we have a loving and gracious and kind father. Come to him. Come to him. This gospel cries out, come to him and be his child. Believe and enter into a better family. That's the point of the book. Well, at last, seventh and finally, the word became flesh. The word became flesh. Look at verses 14 to 18. This eternal word who was there in the beginning. Listen to these words. That word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. The Old Testament starts with Genesis and it ends with a book called Malachi. And then it's really quiet after that. Actually, it's complete and utter silence. It might have seemed like God wasn't doing anything, like God wasn't at work in these days. The silence is especially startling because remember, the Old Testament is a story of anticipation. Everything was pointing to to the one who was to come. Genesis 3.15, right after Adam and Eve sinned, we read that a rescuer would come. Noah's ark. Dr. Adam pointed that Noah's ark pointed to the greater ark that would save us, the cross. As Abraham was there ready to sacrifice Isaac, there was a lamb caught in the thicket that became the substitutionary sacrifice for Isaac. The prophets of old told of a coming Messiah. Isaiah pictures a suffering servant. Ezekiel 34 says that God himself would come, a Davidic king. And even the failures of the priests and the failures of the kings all pointed to a greater priest and a greater king who would come. I could go on and on. The Old Testament is filled with anticipation. But after all of that, Malachi just ends and there's just silence. Just silence. There's nothing. No prophecy, no word, no hope. Maybe you felt this in your own life. Perhaps right now, maybe you're going through something in this season And you wonder, is God even there? Is he even with you? Is he still at work? You're navigating some trial and you feel lost. The darkness is closing in. And it seems that God is silent. Have you ever felt like that? Maybe you do right now. This COVID season has felt impossible for you. You're tired. Maybe you've lost family members. Maybe you're separated from family right now. 
Maybe some of your family are sick. You cry out in those moments, oh God, where are you? God, are you even there? It feels like you're silent. I, I, I can't hear you. I can't see you. I can't feel your presence. Now, after Malachi, you would forgive God's people if that's how they felt. 400 years. 400 years had gone by. That's a lot of time. God had been speaking through his prophets, and then for 400 years, you had silence, and God's people would cry out, Where are you, God? And there was nothing. And that, that sets up the context here, doesn't it? Because four centuries later, breaking through like a lamp in a dark place, the Word became flesh. The Word became flesh. And those 400 years now known as the intertestamental period comes to a close with a big bang. Whereas the law came through Moses, now we have the one who is full of grace and truth. And he has come to us. I mean, let's just stop and just think about that for a minute. God has come to us. God humbled himself. God humbled himself, took on flesh, the one who created man. Right? We saw that the word was the agent of creation. The one who created man became one. Again, this is astonishing. And these words remind us of Exodus 32 through 34 because the literal word for dwelled among us is actually to tabernacle. Some of you have probably studied this. The tabernacle, it was like a tent. It was like a portable, a portable temple of sorts back in the time of Exodus and in the time of the law in Sinai. And it would move along with God's people as they went. And in the very center there of the tabernacle, you'd have the, the most holy room, the, the holy of holies, where the high priest could only go once a year on the day of atonement to atone for the sins of the people. Of course, this wasn't to atone of sin in finality because he would have to do this year after year after year. And of course, there were other sacrifices along the way, but every year he would go into that room only once a year and only one man, and he'd bring in the sacrifice for the atonement of sins. It wouldn't atone finally, but the tabernacle did signify the very presence of God. It was the great meeting place between sinners and the holy God. If sinners are going to be reconciled to God, it had to come through the tabernacle. And so here in John 1, this is a very important word. John is telling us that Jesus came to tabernacle among us. This means that he is the way for sinners to be reconciled to God. It's not a place, but a person. Now, Jesus is the greater tabernacle. Now, we go to him to be saved, and it's not just for the high priest, and it's not just on one day of the year. We go to him to be saved, and all of us can come, and all of us can come even today to be saved because the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. God has come to us. Now, before Jesus came, verse 18 says that no one had seen God like this. In Exodus 33, God says, no one can look at my face and live. But now, but now he's been made known. It's the one that the whole Old Testament anticipated. It's the one the whole Old Testament pointed to. Now, Jesus is God with us. Jesus is the God who is there. The one who is here even now. So as we close, I cry out to you, again, the point of the Gospel of John, will you believe in Jesus to save you? Will you believe? 
Will you turn to Jesus for salvation from your sins? He is the word of God. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ. We thank you for the word who became flesh. We thank you that the word dwelled or tabernacled among us. And so, Father, for those who don't yet believe, would our study of John open their eyes to see your son as their savior. And for those who know you, would we fall more in love with Jesus as we look at his life and his death. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, friends, let's respond to his word by singing the song, King of Kings. Would you please stand with me as we sing?